Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami A few of you have come here for the first time and we find ourselves a group of women, the Women's Buddhist Sangha of Ontario. So we're taught how to live as monastics were trained, how to live in a way that is dependent on others, as I was explaining to some of you. And this is not what the world teaches. The world teaches us independence. But independence doesn't mean doing what you like. Independence means having restriction and being able to be held by that so that you can be really free within. And it's a freedom to do not what we like, but what really makes us well. There's a big difference, isn't there? If we do what we like, just like little children, if they do what they like, they get into all kinds of mischief. And their parents become very frustrated with the result. And they themselves become frustrated because following desire is never fulfilled. There's no fulfillment. It's never enough. Therefore, one has to run to the shops on the 26th (laughs) of December following desire because it's never fulfilled. But surely there's something one can buy in the store that will just top it up. And there isn't. We have all those freedoms, but there's no end to looking for freedom. Why is that? It's due to ignorance. Due to not understanding the truth of where our real happiness can be found. At this time of the return of the light, the light is now coming back into the world. The days are not getting darker. They're starting to get lighter. The trees are like lace, and the whiteness of all that adds to the brightness. And the Buddha gave us, instead of Christmas lights and New Year lights, he gave us seven factors of enlightenment. And these seven factors are to brighten and polish our minds so that they can be all lit up. And it doesn't involve any shopping at all. You certainly wouldn't want to buy lights now because some of them are being recalled because they're dangerous. (laughs) But these lights are very safe. They're safe 
they're very solid and they're substantial. They give us a real foundation for practice. Let's just quickly contemplate these bright lights of awakening, enlightenment factors. And the first one you may all probably guess, sati, mindfulness. It's one of the words that is in the name of this hermitage, sati. There are two words there, one is sati and one is saraniya. Sati is mindfulness, and saraniya comes from the word sarana, which means refuge. But another meaning of it is remembering. So remembering. And another meaning for it, if you put certain diacritical marks on the letters, you get the meaning of reconciliation. That's a whole other topic. But let me come back to mindfulness. Mindfulness is a practice of focusing the mind and stilling the mind attentively on what we are seeing or experiencing in the present moment. Usually we think about one object. Or if you're paying attention to your legs, for example, or the posture, sitting in the chair, you feel mindful of the body in contact with the chair. We have a strong awareness there. And we try to keep that awareness very one-pointed, ardent, continuous. We're diligent with it, not sloppy, and not careless or carefree, but truly intentional. Where is the attention of the mind? Attentive and inten- intention is specific. To focus on the present moment, the present experience. Here we are in the hall, sitting, listening with mindfulness. Sitting, paying attention. Mindful of the body, mindful of the mind. And then there's an ardency in that. We know that this is good for us. So if we're Mindful when we drive, we know it's good for us. But this kind of mindfulness is not just for being out on the highway. We think about every activity that we engage in as part of our travel, part of our arriving in the present moment. So if we act or speak without mindfulness, we could be in danger. We might hurt somebody. We might run into someone. I don't mean because you bump into them, but we might have a debate or or an argument. Run into. That means self running into self. The two egos bash into each other. But if we're mindful and restrained and practicing a good level of virtue, then mindfulness will hold us steady on the path, the path, the Noble Eightfold Path established by the Buddha. It's a different kind of highway. And it happens to be the highway. (laughs) Really is. (laughs) It's really where we want to get. (laughs) 
You don't want to just be traveling the same old roads of Ontario over and over again. We want the road that leads us out of all this confusion. So, this is foundational. Another factor of enlightenment is dhamma-vichaya, which means investigation of dhammas. Now, most of the time, we, we might be operating on automatic pilot. But if we have this investigative quality of mind, that means that we're really reflecting on our experience. We're on the highway and we're traveling and we're noticing the, the state of our vehicle. Is it, is it well? Is it healthy? Or is the transmission working? Are the brakes functioning? But we're very mindful of traffic, staying in the proper lane, not going over on the shoulder, not getting too close to the car in front or the car in back, and signaling at the right time. But this is very much what we want to be doing when we're driving our vehicle of the body with the mind. The mind is governing and directing this vehicle and itself. So this is an important thing to consider. Who's uh, steering? Are we using the Dhamma as our steering wheel or our spare tire? Mm -hmm. It's very important to really steer with a mind that is attentive and reflective. So mindful and also wise, wisely considering and evaluating. Is this skillful or not? If it's not skillful, don't. Then we restrain. Is this harmful or not? If it's harmful, we refrain. So then we create a narrow channel through which we move. And I don't necessarily, I don't mean necessarily physical movement. I mean, where we allow our mind to abide, to dwell. So this is what Dhammavichaya helps us to do. It's a very dynamic, so is mindfulness. These are dynamic forces, dynamic skills that we learn. They're like the spiritual muscles that give us the ability to make the path smooth to remove obstacles, to practice real loving-kindness and compassion to one another and to ourselves, to bring up uh, forgiveness in the heart and to direct it properly in our relationships and in the way we receive what life gives us. There's a third dynamic factor here that bears mentioning, and it's called energy. So this vehicle of moving through life, growing in life, maturing in life, aging, going through the whole process of the human journey, of course we need energy for that. So the energy of this path is an awakening energy. It's not just a dull and dutiful, oh, another day, attitude, but it's a lively, enthusiastic, and energetic effort 
to move well, to live well, to speak well, to think in ways that are skillful, to activate the mind along the lines that the Buddha instructs us with generosity, with virtue, moral foundation. So making effort morally means that whatever is unwholesome in our mind, we try to abandon. Hateful thoughts, mindfulness, knowing, ah, not not skillful, not skillful, abandoning. So what if we just know, well, that's not skillful, but then we act on it. We haven't used the right energy, right effort, not an effort that is uninformed or ignorant. So it's wise. Paying attention in a way that is really seeing the difference between what is safe, what is beneficial, what is benevolent, and what is dangerous, harmful, um, decadent even, or leading to decline. We're looking for what will raise us up spiritually. So right effort, that then if there is something wholesome in the mind, our thoughts are well-intentioned. We have kind wishes for each other. We have the intention to do good and to follow through, to speak well, not to be deceitful, not to be catty, not to be domineering or aggressive, not to be insipid or obsequious. There are so many ways that we can direct the mind to just be straight and forthright and patient and generous, contented, insightful, reflective, really discerning. What is the best I can do here? And even if we don't accomplish that, that's our heartfelt intention. We can keep chipping away until we can really brighten our minds and therefore brighten our speech and actions. So what is not helpful in the mind, we abandon it. And what is helpful, we grow it. That little tree that's back there, when we got it, it was just a broken twig. And now, carefully growing it, growing growing it. And we can do that on the path of spiritual practice as well. Little by little, not just dumping something because it's lacking instant results. Our society wants instant gratification, instant tea, instant information. All the buttons at your disposal to get instant knowledge. But it's not knowledge that brightens the mind necessarily. Unless there's now an app for enlightenment. (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think there ever will be. Because this is the highway, it's not the cheap way. That's cheap. Just have an app do it for you. Who can be a mathematician? Or who can be a true thinker when a machine is doing it or a gadget is doing it? The robot is doing it. It's not really a gift that we can bring up. We're dependent on something else. But this is a path of independence, of self-sufficiency. But it's actually sufficient 
selflessness. There is no self there. It's a different kind of sufficiency. And we're not relying on anything outside this body-mind. That's because when we're dying, we need to be able to... We can't press any act at that point. Help me die here. Give me some peace so I can die well. Not possible. Yes, some nice concert can come on. But that's not going to settle the mind. But these enlightenment factors will. They absolutely will. So the other two efforts are whatever unwholesomeness is not in the mind, but it may be, if we're not careful, if we're not on guard, it may creep in some nasty habits that we have. And uh, whatever that might be, we make the effort to guard the mind so that we don't go there. It's like sealing the gate of the mind from harm, from depression, from negative thinking, from hostility. When we see someone that we have a bad feeling towards, not to indulge it, not to pick up on it, but to try to abandon that and bring up positive thoughts. Yes, that person is loved by their mother. There must be some good qualities there. And they've you know, just gone off a little bit. So we work in those ways to prevent unskillful things from arising within us. And then whatever harmlessness, whatever strength, spiritual strengths, have not yet appeared within us, we create the conditions in the heart to invite them, to develop them, to grow them, to really fertilize them. They get very tall and make us spiritually tall. Because after all, we are on this highway to Nibbana, to the deathless. So those are the three dynamic enlightenment factors. Mindfulness, investigation of the mind, and effort, right effort, four right efforts. Now then, there come four other factors that are awakening factors, they're brightening factors. They're like the brightening factors, not what you put into detergent, but you could say this is a kind of mental detergent to wash out all those defilements. And they're septic-friendly, too. Which <laughs> so they're environmentally good. And what are they? Well, the first one is piti. So piti translates into bliss, happiness, uprising joy, quality of tremendous joy. Now, the Buddha was very wise. He understood that this mind, to be really well, the mind needs to be happy. That's why the world is racing after happiness in so many divergent forms, some of them quite ill-conceived, because they don't bring happiness at all. Human beings really crave happiness. And this craving is a fundamental drive 
of the ignorant mind. So the Buddha discovered through meditation practice a happiness that is wholesome. It doesn't feed that same craving for the sense realm. It actually brings forth, fortifies in us the spiritual dimension of well-being and wholeness, of moral integrity within us. And piti comes as, as a result of that kind of practice, this uprising, joyful, sparkling quality of the mind. But by itself, it's not enough. It's one of the results of these three dynamic awakening factors. But there is another one that comes on its heels. So if you sit and have a wonderful experience in your practice and you feel some kind of shimmering or ecstatic sense, like a breakthrough or a great joy and release, then two days later you sit down and nothing happens. You start to crave for that. So we must also let that go and just see where the mind will take us, review how we experienced that bliss, and then let the mind find its home, because it'll find it again if we put in the right causes and conditions. And we will eventually see that that state of bliss matures when it settles. It matures into a calmer happiness, a very deep stilling of the mental fabrications. And this is called pasadi. Pasadi is a, a calming of the mind, and we all love that calm. The PT has an excitement in it, and you're really, really happy. But then this is a more serene and present happiness. It's not so energetic, and very wide birthed and accepting of the present moment. Not looking for anything is very common. We need that. We need to detox from the stress of life, from the stress of the burdens of these five aggregates. They're absolutely a burden. If we don't dress them up and prop them up and spray them and smear them with lotions and all the rest of it, then they become smelly and dirty. They have to be washed and cleaned and so much care goes just into maintaining the body, cutting nails and cuticles and hair and all that stuff. We have to shave our heads every week because it just grows back. <laughs> so yeah, we don't do long hair of any dimension. And this is a great freedom to just keep trimming it all. What a wonderful analogy for the path is to keep shaving the heart and purifying the defilements from the mind, purifying those obstructions that keep coming back, coming back. Oh, there it is again. Chin, your ears, wherever. <laughs> it's always growing, they always grow back until enlightenment. Full enlightenment, they don't grow back anymore. 
Well, the hair on the head does, but, <laughs> but the defilements of the heart don't. And that's the highest freedom. So calming the mind, and then we have samadhi. And when the mind becomes calm, then we can enter into a state of deep concentration. And we all know that when you concentrate something, the flavor of it, like concentrated apple juice, you only need a little bit, right? And out of that you can get a lot of juice. Well, you know where I'm going here. But <laughs> so what the power of the mind is amplified through concentration, samadhi, unification of the mind, a stability, a deep gravitas. Rather than just a pile of sand, it becomes like a mountain. Sand, it spills and it can be thrown in every direction. But a mountain is rock-like. It doesn't move. This is the kind of attention that we need. It's rock-like. It's a firmament out of which wisdom can appear and emerge. So this is what we want to develop. And this is the fruit of the three dynamic enlightenment factors. And then from concentrating the mind in that way, moment by moment, we do that through moments. They're cumulative. The more we practice concentration, the more the mind can be still for longer periods of time. At first, it's just learning to abide in calm rather than in distraction and restlessness. But the undistracted state of samadhi is much deeper than that. So you see all of these four resultant enlightenment factors develop one upon the other, going from the joy, because until we're joyful, we don't even want to be in this body or in the mind. We just want out. We want to go to the world and find the happiness out there. But when we can find the happiness in here, we're willing to stay put, to tune into the, the best station of all. It's right here. And it's a station. You know, in Christianity, you have the stations of the cross. This is the station of awakening. It's the axis mundi, the intersection of the timeless and time. And it's in this center point, which is within us, we can really discover the truth of this realm, of this life, of this journey. When that is accomplished, going from the joy to the calm, to the stability, and then to the equanimity. It's within the upeka quality, that's the fourth one, where the stability matures and ripens in a state of mind that is equanimous with conditions regardless of how they are. It could be terrorists coming in with their rifles right now. We would sit equanimously, greet them, and accept, okay, they're going to shoot. There would be no self clinging to life. There would be no clinging to anything. This is the perfection of equanimity. 
This is the direction that we are moving as practitioners. We're moving to a state of complete freedom from fear. Complete freedom from hatred, from greed, from miserliness, from selfishness, from aggression of any kind. The most pure state a human being can experience. And we experience it in little increments, day by day, moment by moment, day by day, month by month, year by year, so that when we die, there's a portal at the moment of death, an opportunity. We're letting go of the body, and we can, at that moment, let all these beautiful enlightenment factors rush in and ripen us completely ripen within us, completely within the heart, then let go. Because there will be nothing to fear at all. We will have understood exactly what is to be understood.